we would be honored if you would join us. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Dungeon Crawlers, where we are bringing you a best of episode. That's right. We've got some cool things going on behind the scenes, and because of that, this week we're throwing out a best of episode to you. Now, this best of episode is spectacular. We're throwing together three different episodes that we've done over the last little while and wanted to, to share those with you. So in this episode, there will be three spectacular authors that we have loved and enjoyed having on the show. The first up would be Justin Woolley, who we talked about his new book, Shakedowners. Then we have Christopher Blumen uh, with his new book, The Black Tongue Thief. And then we'll wrap this show up, as always, with the spectacular and amazing Tracy Hickman. I, I love this. Uh, I'm just reading more on, on the book. Uh, it says this book is perfect for fans of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's exactly where my mind went. My favorite, <laughs> Red Dwarf. Yeah. And yes. Space team. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as, as you're, you're explaining this, I'm just like, yeah, this sounds like <laughs> Red Dwarf, you know? Yeah. Yes, it's totally. And that's what I mean. It's like definitely a homage to all of the things that I really loved. But also, you know, it becomes its own own thing. And I think, like, you know, the whole good artists borrow great artists steal things. So oh, yeah. you're going to take from the best people, mash them together, and hopefully get a good product. No, it sounds like a great product. Just, I mean, I without even going and reading through the book, just the description and everything you you've said, it sounds like a great, fantastic book. Um, you know, I will admit it. I am not the biggest Star Trek fan. I'm a huge Star Wars fan, but Star Trek, mm -hmm. yeah, this sounds like my cup of tea. I mean, uh, you know, the Orville that was, I love that yeah. more than Star <laughs> Trek because yeah. they had problems and systems were failing and yeah. You know, the captain yeah, was arguing great. with the first mate because it was his ex-wife and stuff like that. And I'm like, that's just, that's how it, I can see Star Trek really being not this weird, uh, well, what it was. Uh, yeah. For those people that love Star Trek, I apologize. It, you can love it all <laughs> you want. Uh, Dan just said, sorry, not sorry. Anyway, yes. so yeah, you know, you know what's funny is Orville also came to mind. And now I will, I realize this is not an episode about reviewing Orville. I will say this much. I think that show had a terrific opportunity that it full on squandered. I think that that show did a terrible job with a great premise. Uh, mm -hmm. But that is another episode for another day. Your book, on the other hand, it, well, okay. So your book sounds very much like it's in the same category in terms of its premise. The premise is extremely strong, borrows from familiar elements and utilizes them in unfamiliar ways. Uh, what kind of influences drove your writing as you created this book? Uh, so it's, I, I mean, obviously it's, it's similar to Hitchhiker's Guide. It's it's maybe not as absurdist as the hmm. Douglas Adams, but it's got some crazy stuff in there because, I mean, I always think science fiction is is ripe for comedy because you can you know the universe is massive the space is big right so there's lots yeah. of crazy stuff out there you can use but the humor and the characters are probably more influenced by terry pratchett style mm -hmm. of humor nice. in that you know you've got characters like in the in the disc world series so when i was growing up like terry pratchett was my favorite or still is my favorite author probably good he, on you yeah, like just, I can rent, my mum bought me Colour of Magic when I was probably 12 or something. And I read that and was just like, I was already reading some like sword and sorcery type of fantasy. And and then I was like, oh my God, you can do other things here. Like, you know, you can make this funny. And, but what I love about Pratchett is the characters can still be, good at their jobs so you know sam vimes or whatever in the city watch like he is still good at his job and like you know there are characters who aren't like rincewin the wizard who is terrible at everything but you know there are there you can have a character who is 
competent and yet funny. So you don't have to have incompetence. Um, and that's sort of what I wanted to take away. Like the, the crew of, of the, the Diesel Coast and Iridius and his crew are all in their own way, very competent. They just have a lot of, you know, eccentricities and funny behaviour and the way they interact with each other is funny. So that was probably the influence, that kind of, you know, there's definitely some absurd stuff in the universe they run into and, you know, like the, the, the without spoiling too much, the, the um, artificial intelligence is basically like takes um takes root in a toy dog like a robotic dog and you know and that becomes the major villain of the story so there's like some <laughs> weird stuff <laughs> but it's but it's like you know the the characters themselves are uh you know still look like they know what they're doing sometimes <laughs> so it was probably pratchett for the writing style but definitely star trek like it is absolutely an homage to star trek when i was a kid i don't know maybe six or so my dad got this started collecting this vhs like subscription service yep. of, of the original series of star trek where you get like a you know you get like a video tape a month or every two weeks or whatever with a couple of episodes on it and he started collecting all of those and then he did the same with next generation so oh man yeah, so I ended up as a kid. I had like the, I watched through all of the original series and all of Next Generation like multiple times. And like I love Star Wars too, um, love all kinds of science fiction, but Star Trek was definitely the first sci fi show I really loved. That's beautiful. And he then went on also to introduce me to a lot of British humor, uh, like Red Dwarf. Oh, I love and, that show and, so much, you know, and and even Monty Python and that sort of, you know, stuff like that. And so all this book is just all of that stuff. And, you know, I've, I've written, we've had four books published before this. I've done like other stuff, but I just, when I was writing this book, it was just so much fun to like, I was, and I, I, it was the first book I kind of really sat back from and went like, Oh my God, like this is what I'm supposed to be writing. Like, this is who I am. This is the stuff I grew up loving. And now I get to kind of mash it all together and make my own thing. So I love it. I love the fact that like, this is, this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. It was a great feeling. <laughs> As a fellow author, I, I know that feeling, you know, when you, you know, cause you're writing stuff and it's like, okay, this is good. You know, I'm not doing too bad, but you still have that kind of uh, imposter type syndrome feeling. But yeah. Find the zone of what is you that you love to write, man. It's it's an amazing feeling. So, Indeed. yeah, and I'm definitely proud of of all my work I've done before. But it's yeah, this is definitely like the most fun I've ever had writing a book. Yeah, it's, it's that piece of your soul that just is like I'm free. Yeah, yeah, and it just comes so easy yep. <laughs> when it comes. It comes out really uh, a lot easier than. Oh, than other stuff. Even more excited about this book. <laughs> Not so, that any of the other stuff you've written before is, is bad. It's just it just seems like when you have that zone, that 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 flow in what you're writing, man, it's just so much better. Yeah. So I, I'm excited, especially with all of the uh, the inspiration points you have. It, you just mentioned it's like I love all of the all of that. It's like so, oh, man. I'll probably be reading it. And I'm like, oh, hey, well, there's a uh, there's the King Arthur from Monty Python character, or the Black Knight, <laughs> or there's Lister from Red Dwarf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. List, Lister can sometimes sometimes be my spirit animal. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, one of the questions I love asking authors is, you know, it we we tend to write what we know, and as part of that, we will pour a portion of our character of our personal like like our personal persona in the world we will pour parts of it into each of the characters sometimes we'll create a character that is perhaps our avatar and sometimes we create a character that is our antithesis is there a character you identify with most yeah i think well i think they're all maybe what was good about this book is that having this crew so iridius the captain is definitely the main character it's all for us pretty much from his point of view but you know it, it was like 
all of them in a way are a part of me. And that's why I, f- I think I found I enjoyed writing the crew because, you know, I grew up as the nerdy kind of kid, I guess. And, um, and then super into science and maths and, and things like that. And went on to study like engineering, which, you know, can I'll talk about later about how that informs the book, but um, also like had some issues with anxiety and stuff like that. So the, the first officer who's like the science geek, but, and really smart and super competent, but so anxious that she struggles to perform under pressure was like part of me. And then, but then also there's part of me that's the roguish captain a little bit. And then there's the smart ass helmsman who would be <laughs> crack, you know, cracking the jokes and stuff like that. And I think they're all a little bit of me. Um, so yeah, they, they all were almost like if I split my personality up and made a starship crew, you're going to get this lot. So. I knew I wanted to write about thieves too. I always liked them. I haven't played role-playing games for 30 years. Um, mm-hmm. I played D&D like every other card-carrying nerd back in the 80s. And, uh, but Right about 19, I sort of knew I was spending so much time on it. I'd, ne- I'd never become a writer if I just kept DMing. So, yeah, uh, yeah I p- put all my energy into that stuff. Absolutely love it. And, and it's great to come from a pedigree like that as well, especially to be able to go and begin to develop your craft in other genres and then come home to roost a little, so to speak, to be able to really delve back into some of those, those worlds that I imagine you've held in your head for a long time in some cases. What were some of those inspirations or some of those things that brought you into fantasy to begin with? And maybe what are some of the things that have carried through with you as pillars of your writing style and and of your exploration? Well, one of the things I discovered in the horror writing field was that when I got closer to fantasy, I started having a better time. Like, I really enjoyed writing Between Two Fires because we're dealing with you know, a medieval milieu, and I, I, I just enjoy medieval arms and armor and, and fe- you know, feudal history and all of that sort of thing. Um, but also, my third novel, The Necromancer's House, um, is about a guy who's a recovering alcoholic living in upstate New York, hiding, hoping Baba Yaga doesn't discover him because he stole some <laughs> from her back during the Soviet era, right? So... Um, it's about magic. It's a little, it's sort of in the same lane as like the magicians or um, uh, Dresden. So nice. it would, would be of a piece with that stuff, but it's a bit more, it's about as, it's probably about as dark as the magicians, darker than Dresden. Um, but I had to invent a magic system for it. And uh, I had great fun doing that. I, I, I really love the idea that magic always costs something. Um, so that's very heavily in the necromancer's house, but it's also it's also in the Black Tongue Thief. I think you'd find the magic systems between those very different novels compatible. I absolutely love that as a foundation. <clears throat> One of the things that I bring into my campaigns all the time is the idea that anything is possible, but everything comes at a price, right? Yeah. Like you've got to find that patron, you've got to find that source of power, or you've got to sacrifice something real and important, maybe even something that you don't see or that you don't know yet. I, exactly. I love that. Like, in, how, like in, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, well, like in the Necromancer's house, the guy, his name is Andrew Blankenship, right? And he's hmm. he's in his 50s now, but he looks 35-ish because he's constantly running this low-grade spell that keeps him looking good. And this the cost of the spell grows exponentially as he gets older and it gets harder to look 35 right Hmm. and he doesn't even realizing that the low-grade defensive spells he put on his house are draining and are are running out of gas because he's vain um so this leaves him vulnerable when he's finally found that's awesome it's a very dorian gray shift you know i i like that a lot that that's excellent and in addition to so so you've written you've written horror and you've set it in historical fictional settings as well as and, and now you've written fantasy yeah. uh but that's not all you've done uh you, you've also so i'm a horror fan and i'm also like a film and television fan 
and uh, you did an episode of the resurrected show Creep Show. Yeah, I did. I wrote uh, I wrote one called The Man in the Suitcase. That's right. Now, now, how was that? I mean, you've written plays before, but this is a screenplay now. Uh, how how was that experience different for you than authoring, uh, say, Across the River or Between Two Fires? Oh, it's it's a whole whole different skill set. You know, like I I took up writing plays before I'd ever finished a novel. Um, I wrote a bunch of short plays in the late '90s, early 2000s, and I wrote a couple of full-length plays in the mid aughts. Um, I think that was a good apprenticeship uh, to be a novelist, learning how to write dialogue. Um, but it's a very different thing. And I didn't just come right out of the gate and you know sort of fart out this creep show episode. I, I <laughs> you know, I've been wanting to break into television writing for some time. So I actually. Uh, I have a, a book to film agent, um, Sean Daly, out in New York with a, it's Hotch, Hotchkiss Daly and Associates. And uh, I've been work, working with him for a bit. I've, I've been working, trying to develop a, I wrote a pilot for those across the river that's in development. Um, but I also wrote a pilot for Between Two Fires, which hasn't gone anywhere yet. Um, and I am now developing The Lesser Dead, my fourth novel, uh, into a podcast for a company called... Ooh. Echoverse. Nice, nice. Yeah, I got all the merch. Um, <laughs> but it, that's a lot of fun, and it's it's been kind of been a been a full time job since October. Um, but we're, it's 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 really a it's really a blast. So to answer your question more briefly, it is incredibly different, but it's something I like about as much. So in that episode, The Man in the Suitcase, uh, it is described as a nifty little tale of comeuppance. What was the inspiration behind that episode? A lot of my horror comes from an image. And I just got the image of this guy bent up in a suitcase. And what would happen if you went to the luggage carousel, right? at the airport and you brought home your very heavy suitcase. And when you got home, there was a dude in it and <laughs> he was talking to you. Oh, we've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> they say, write what you know. So I'm assuming that you know. <laughs> art imitates life. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's fascinating. Um, so, so let's, uh, let's kind of like boomerang back a little bit to Black Tongue Thief. So you make the leap from horror to fantasy. And we talked about like what, what caught, you know, the catalyst for that. Um, what were some of your inspirations? You know, when, when we're digging into certain genres, we, we have inspirational sources and we have sort of like the vision in our mind that like reflects that genre. Uh, and of course, yours is unique to others. But what kind of inspirations fueled your understanding of, of the fantasy genre and how uh, it influenced Black Tongue Thief? Well, I'm going to make a confession here, and that is that I do better with fantasy than science fiction, in part because it is easier for me to imagine the worlds that are that are being portrayed most of the time, depending on what kind of fantasy it is. Um, for example, I find that my favorite fantasy novels are sort of in that second world pigeonhole, you know, things that like I enjoy Guy uh, Gabriel Kay because he's there writing the Lions of Al-Rasan and he, it's, it's it's basically Moorish Spain that you're that you're experiencing. I really enjoy Game of Thrones for much the same reason. You know, you can you can sort of recognize, if not individual countries, you can you can certainly pick out historical events and things like the chain across the Blackwater being like the chain that they used when Constantinople fought against uh, Mehmet II. And uh, they put a chain across the Golden Horn and Mehmet couldn't get his navy in. And it looked like he maybe thwarted, but he just cut down trees and they, they rolled their navy across the land to the other side mm. in the act. Um, I like, but I like fantasy where, you can hang, where, I can, where I can hang my hat on it and sort of already have a head start to seeing what's happening. So then how do you determine then, you know, to, you, you've got the familiar at what point do you diverge into the fantastic? Yeah, well, the familiar is really just a, just a starting off point. Um, I, you know, it, what depends, it depends on, on, for me it is anyway. I know, I know that there are some authors where it's really quite 
where he's really quite close to to what's going on. I'll tell you one of my favorite fantasy authors is Joe Abercrombie. Um, I absolutely love the first Law series, but even more than the first three books of the first Law series, I really, really love um, the novel Best Served Cold, which is in the same world, but it's set in the the fictional country of Styria, uh, which is basically Italy. And it's Italy circa, I would say 1480, 1500. Sort of the same technology level you'd see and the same kind of people running around that you'd see in the, in that old Rutger Hauer movie, um, Flesh and Blood, if you're familiar mm-hmm. with that. That's one of, that's one of my favorites. Um, but it's, it's talk, he's talking about Italian mercenaries, basically. Um, and you have these different city-states that are very similar in their ways to Florence and Venice and Milan and Rome all struggling. And you get this mercenary um, named Monza Mercato. And I love what he does, making the name sound very plausibly Italian, but it's not Italian. You know, it's, he, I, that, I love that stuff. So where do, you, where do you stop and where do you start? Yeah. Um, I have, my world has non-human races in it. Um, There are goblins. And I drew a little bit from my my sort of horror brain for them because they're pretty nasty. And I dealt with them pretty naturalistically. Like I was thinking, so if you, if you're going to have goblins, what are, what are they, what are they like? You know, what do they physically look like? How do they, how do they move? What are they like? Um, and I imagine them having sharp teeth, almost like river fish, but they've got articulated tongues um, so that they don't bite their own tongues off, right? That's gnarly. Yeah. And, but because they've got these like plated tongues, their consonants are different. They, they sound almost insectile when they speak because there's a lot of hissing and clacking um, because of the apparatus in their mouth. Um, yeah. So there, there's there's an example of a of a jumping off point from history. That sounds amazing. You know, one of the other things that's uh, absolutely I'm going to. I mean, every the deeper and deeper we get into this, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just excited <laughs> about this. And and the other thing that's really clear is as as we are talking, addressing these questions, and as you're taking the time to really think through them, is it's clear that you go to great lengths to be well-educated, to be well-versed, to be thinking about the way that you're going to introduce your story, the way that you're structuring things, the way that you have to start from the known and move into the unknown. What are some of the struggles that you find as you are trying to write this book or you know, write these stories that you already have all of that base knowledge in your head, things that you have spent hours researching and figuring out and learning about and being invested in? What are some of the things that you find you need to do to help to engage an audience and get them to that kind of minimum knowledge level? That is actually something, you know, we all have things, whatever our craft is, we all have things we feel pretty confident in that we, we, you know, we're reasonably good at and things that we know we struggle with. And I'll be perfectly honest that one of the areas in which I struggle, and this is true for television writing too, is in plotting. Um, I don't, I don't like laying out a complex plot, a complex outline. I really like getting to know characters and let the, and let the characters dictate what happens. And that is easier to do in a novel where you have uh, an unlimited amount of real estate to burn. Mm-hmm. But when you're writing for something like television, you, you've every, every syllable, every second can, can count, has to count, it yeah. has to be counted. Um, so I struggle with that. Where I, where I find I, I don't seem to struggle is, and I mean, this is for you to determine, but um, I really enjoy the craft of, of giving out knowledge in a way that doesn't hamper development, doesn't hamper pacing. Mm-hmm. You know? um, I really like shaking up whether you learn something in a song or whether you are told something directly by somebody or if you just find a relic or whatever it is. Hmm. For example, um, I didn't, one of the, one of the features of this world is that these goblin wars were awful. They were, <laughs> they were their world war one 
um, only even maybe worse. So that when the goblins invaded several kingdoms at the same time, they sort of just burst out from underground. It's like nobody knew what was going on with them. There, there were so many of them. They, there are theories about where they may have come from. There was the big calamity back in the past. Did they come through a breach in the world? That nobody really knows. Mm-hmm. But they exploded and mankind won the first war called the Knights War. Um, they were able to, the, the invasion was on a smaller scale than it was later. They drove them back with armored cavalry because goblins are only about three, three to four feet tall and they're light mm-hmm. and they weren't able to stand up to charges. But there's magic in this world, as I've said, and these two different species are strong at different kinds of magic. And one of the things the goblins can do, we discovered to our horror, was brew plagues. And they didn't want to wipe us out, or maybe they couldn't. They wanted, they liked to eat us. So they came up with an equine plague called the Stumbles, and all of the horses died. So by the time we get to the world we're in now, this is actually a, a medieval tech world with no horses. Huh. I love it. That, that's actually perfect because it leads into another question that I had is that, you know, because you start a lot of the times in the known, what are some of the things that you do to take some of the tropes and ideas and, you know, themes and things that people already have in their head and begin to turn them? I mean, obviously goblins are considerably more developed in your canon than in many others in terms of culture and nuance. There's clearly some scientific uh, knowledge or magical knowledge there that's continuing to grow and their physiology is slightly different. But what are some of the other ways that when you're considering elements within your story that you find ways to change or evolve them beyond what maybe an average reader would think in their head? Huh, well, one thing that I did besides one, one way in which society changed a great deal was that, okay, so the first war was the Knight's War. The second war was called the Thresher's War. And that one went considerably worse for humanity because you, you, didn't, you, didn't, have, you didn't have horses. We were much less mobile. Um, so we marched, we marched out there, took ox carts or whatever, and tried to march armies at them. And... Um, there were a lot more of them this time and they had learned from us. They had learned our tactics too. And they shredded us. It was horrible. And they started must they started musters in every village and they started culling all of all of the males. All of them were going and not coming back uh, often. And it got so bad that for by the time now that we were inflicting casualties on them too, so they they withdrew. They their life cycle was a bit shorter, so they had another wave ready before we did. Um, and when they came at us in the daughters' war, guess who fought? <laughs> um, there and and humanity was ultimately victorious. So that was quite a brutal one too. But one of the things that happened culturally is that you will not find men between the ages of 21 and like early 40 or, or 50s, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a generation and a half of men is gone, all, all but gone. There's a few, but they're generally missing fingers, goblins bite. Um, but and, and women have grown into uh, a, a more equal and some t- in some way some, in some ways a dominant um, posture in society. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that was so fun to do with this book was when I'm writing incidental characters. You know, if you meet a town, you meet a guard at the city gates. You know, you, your first thought from the you know your sort of patriarchal and historical context is that it's going to be a, a dude, a big dude, but no, probably not. Um, probably a woman. Bartender, probably a woman. Um, mm-hmm. One of the roles men find uh, for themselves easily is prostitute. Hmm. I love it. A good villain it, um, is absolutely convinced that they are the hero. Mm-hmm. Agreed. A good villain always needs to be convinced of the rightness of their cause. Mm-hmm. 
um, um, because otherwise they just get kind of snidely whiplash on you and they're not very believable or understandable. Um, the best the best villain villain is the villain that is absolutely convinced that they are doing the right thing. Yeah. Uh, that comment right there is something that we've talked about on the show multiple times. We've talked about how the difference between a hero and a villain is one choice, or sometimes it's put one bad day. Yeah. Uh, that's the difference between a hero and a villain. Both heroes and villains, typically speaking, not always, but typically have an ideology, some belief that is at their core that drives them. And that drive will push them into the fires of death if it has to. And because of that, either the, that makes the hero dangerous for villains or villains dangerous for heroes, right? It's that belief. It, that, that concept is so fascinating. I love that you have that belief when you're writing, hero, when you're writing villains because uh, we, we want to avoid the trope of there's this villain who just wants power, just wants to rule. Of course, there are villains like that, sure, but they're not as, um, they're not sympathetic, right? It's hard for an audience member to say, you know, it's hard to, I realize who the heroes are, I realize who the villains are, but sometimes it's hard to choose because I understand where they're both coming from. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> I, the, the film Serenity, for example, I think has one of the best villains of all time because the guy that's fighting against Mal and the other, and the other uh, crew of the Ser of Serenity, uh, he is an absolute believer and you can't, you can't defeat him in his position of belief until you defeat the belief. No. Do you mm -hmm. find when you're writing, when, when you're writing your characters, when you're writing your heroes or your villains, and actually I want to focus on the villains for right now, when you're writing your villains, how do you get yourself into that mindset or like how steeped or deep do you get into their belief so that you can do them justice? Oh, I think that they're, they're, the, their objectives and their beliefs and, their, and where they're coming from is absolutely essential. Now, whether that is a delusional belief or, you know, depends on the, depends on the character, but I, I much prefer a villain who has, who has, who has an absolute moral conviction that they're correct, um, uh, or 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 is flawed in in a particular way that makes them blind to the the basic uh, fallacy of their conviction. Um, uh, it, it, it's interesting. That one of um, one of my favorite villains uh, is um, uh, Strad von Zarevich uh, from Ravenloft. And uh, he is interesting because he's a true monster. He is, um, uh, he is blind to his own um, failings and, and is so self-absorbed that he, he cannot see um, the the gaping hole in his his reasoning and in and in his logic. Um, uh, Lord uh, Lord Soth is very much the same way. Um, Lord Soth certainly is is convinced of the rightness of of himself, and believes himself to be um, uh, believes himself to be uh, the person who is wronged in all of this, even to the point of believing that the gods have wronged him in this. If the gods really understood what he was going through, then, then they'd have, they'd have excused his terrible behavior and, and, and things would have been just fine. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's true for that matter of, of the gods themselves. Tachesis doesn't want to take over the world just to take over the world because she's bored on a Saturday night. She's taking over the world because she believes that she can run it better, that, that her way truly is better. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the essence of a really great villain. Um, if you look at the Harry Potter series, um, there are a lot of villains in the Harry Potter series. And quite frankly, I think Voldemort is a really weak villain. Uh, a weak sauce villain. Yeah. Um, the one that I find to be a uh, far more frightening than Voldemort 
um, uh, was um, why I can't think of her name now. Oh, she wears pink. Yes, right? she wears pink. Yes. You know uh, exactly who I'm talking about. Umbridge. Yes. yes. Professor uh, Umbridge. Yeah. Yes. I agree. And she is she is the worst of the villains in the Harry Potter universe because she is so absolutely convinced of the rightness of herself that it justifies any cruelty that she can mete out uh, in, in order to bring the world in alignment with, uh, with her viewpoint. She is a far more frightening villain to me than Voldemort ever was. Yeah, truth. No, I mean, with Voldemort, I just kind of like, uh, okay, but, you know, with, with Umbridge, man, I grew to hate her, and I'm like, okay, someone's right and her right. This is a villain because I'm, I have this desire to, I don't like her. I just want to see her get her comeuppance. Voldemort, I'm like, uh. Well, with, uh, the problem with Voldemort is, you, is, is that you don't really have a sense of why yeah. he's doing this. I mean, he's not, what is he really trying to achieve other, other than I'm the best, I'm the baddest, I'm the, you know, uh, it, is he trying to, I, okay, man, is he trying, uh, great, I'm going to, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't presume to rewrite, you know, the most <laughs> successful book series of all time, but, um, but uh, in my head, is he, is he trying to take over the wizarding world so that he can take over the rest of the world? Is he going to just completely overwhelm, you know, come, come out of this kind of shadow of wizardry and the wizards have all been like hiding somehow from, from the, from the rest of the muggle world and muggle technology, you know, is, is his great plan to like take over the, the magical world and then use that power base to take over the muggle world as well and incorporate technology and magic into some great unifying thing. That to me is a more interesting objective. Um, yeah, and maybe he is, I don't know. Um, I, we don't talk much, he never writes. And so I, <laughs> you know. Well, but, I mean, Grindelwald in, in, you know, the Fantastic Beast, you have a sense of why and a purpose of what he's doing. Um, so, but with Baltimore, it's kind of, you're right. It's kind of like, so why is he doing this? Uh, is he trying to be a copycat? Is he going to take over the world? Is it just, he wants control of the wizarding world? We, we is he know. going to be putting a, a, a whole series of waffle houses together? I, yeah, I maybe. whatever it, it, magic waffle houses, magic waffle houses. I'd be happy to, you know, think about that. Yeah, I mean, it, you you see that with all the villains in 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 Dragonlance. I mean, Kitiara is you know she's not going to bow to any man, but you know she will until the moment is right, and then she goes to take, you know, she uses Tannis to get the crown of power, and uh, you know, she that's right, and she's going to she's going to take the crown of power because once she has the crown of power, then everything will be okay because she'll be able to fix it. Yeah, and and that's an objective you know, that makes sense. Uh, you know, Raceland was very much the same way. Yeah. And, and, and through the twin series, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take over, I'm going to take over and I'm going to defeat Takisis and I'm going to take her place because, because I can do it better. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and even in that series, you know, Kidiara again, is like, you know, she she's like i'm gonna undermine him she, he needs to learn a lesson and, you know and then send soth after chrysania and then you know that that just plays into raceland's hand uh you know even the king priest you know where he willingly defies the, the gods and commands them you know he's doing it in his own arrogance yeah absolutely he's better uh which that's is the king priest is another example of a uh, uh, of the good villain yeah he's the he is so sure that he's right that it justifies any means to uh, to achieve it. Yeah, I mean, that again. That's why I love the series. Uh, it's it was just it's great. You have all these interwoven interest yeah intricacies. I'm, there it is. I'm getting tongue tied. I'm there for you, Dan. Just because I, I love the series. I uh, you know, and I hope I hope that 
you know, because it's so sad going to a bookstore and not seeing Dragon Man's on the shelf anymore. Um, so I hope with these new books coming out, we'll see more of the old stuff. Well, I've been, I've been, I've been very hopeful actually about the about getting um, some of the more classic books out back on shelf. And I know that there are a lot of our uh, fans that are out there who really want to share this with their with their children, with the grandchildren. Yeah. And uh, and and this whole the whole experience of it, and it's difficult for them to do because you just simply can't find the books. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I would love to see a treatment in fifth edition. Uh, you know, we, we third edition was <laughs> the last time we saw one. Yeah, last I've I've I think that's probably the most uh, often requested thing that I get online is is there going to be a fifth edition Dragonlance? And I, you know, yeah, I just write the books these days. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, it's not my department, but uh, yeah. I certainly hope so. I, I we started in D and D, and I I I'd love to be able to. Uh, to go back that would be nice even if it doesn't I, i'm excited for books uh i'm excited to revisit the world and and roam around in there and uh go ahead and you know what on on those notes uh so if it if it's not already obvious dan is obviously steeped in the <laughs> lore of Dragonlance and has probably read them most of his uh life so, so I'm i'm gonna put it this way my Dragonlance novels are the only novels I have where the back where the my spines are broken, east and broken, uh, and some are held together with uh, uh, packaging tape. If you are new to the show and just don't know Dan, you do not understand the gravity of that statement. That is enormous. I, I never break the spines of my book, but my Dragonlance one, all of them are broken. <laughs> so I, on the other hand, am sort of on the other end of the spectrum where I've read the first three books, the books of the Dragonlance Chronicles, the first series. Uh, but I never had access to any of the others after that. So I've only know the first three books and I read the first three books like over 20 years ago. So of course I'm like reaching to the recesses of my mind. The reason I wanted to kind of hijack the conversation for a moment is because there are plenty of people who listen to this show who have never read the Dragonlance series. They are just being introduced to it. They're being made aware of it. Maybe they've heard of it in the ether, but now they're listening to the world maker, one of the two primary world builders who started Dragonlance. And maybe they have an interest in this. Also, I'm hoping that some of my friends from decades ago are listening to this show because so many of them got the pronunciation of your character names wrong. And I needed the validation that, that the way I was saying them was correct because so far I've been batting a thousand and I feel pretty good about it. Um, to that end, to that end, uh, in the Chronicles book, we have a handful of main characters. There are the twins. You already yeah. mentioned Raceland. Um, how do you, j just for clarity, how do you pronounce his, uh, twin brother's name? I know how I say it, but I'll let I you know how I say it too. So okay, maybe I'm, we should do I'm... that. Maybe we should do that. Dan, how do you say it? Caramon. Yeah. I say Caramon too. What does Tracy say? <laughs> Smiling. I say, even when it comes to Raceland, we, we, we get pronunciations depending on the geographical area. Sure. Okay. Um, there are many areas in the country that produce it, pronounce it Rastland okay. or Rastland. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there are other places that pronounce it in other ways. Um, and so I'm going to answer your question. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just waiting for this loaded gun to go off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, and, and, here, and, here, and here it is. Karaman. When, not joking. Go ahead. Now, Karam. Oh, that's good. I love it. The, the I mean, people come up to us at conventions and, and, <laughs> and places when we visit all the time and they want to know how to, how to pronounce these things. But, but at the same time, people will also come up to us at conventions and they will um, start telling us about our books. And on the face of it, that sounds really ridiculous to tell me about the book that I wrote. You'd think I'd have read it before. But <laughs> the truth is that there, and as I've come to understand down through the years and met uh, so many wonderful fans, 
what I've come to understand is that what they're really trying to tell me about is their performance of my book. Um, yeah, if, uh, and we've talked about this before, but, but if you look at the uh, uh, data density of a novel, um, it is extremely low. In fact, uh, the worst photograph that you can take with the crappiest phone uh, today um, actually has a larger file size than a completed novel. And that's because the data density in the novel really isn't that great. And if you think about it, it's a long string of symbols mm -hmm. that are kind of you know broken up on the page so that it fits on the page. But in essence, it's a very long string of symbols um, but not terribly data dense. What happens is that the reader reads those words and in that white space in between the words, there's the spark of creation that takes place where you take all those symbols and in that white space, all of the sights and the sounds and the smells and the experience of the written word emerge in your mind and you fill all of that in with your imagination. And so a book is actually a collaborative uh, creation, both between the writer and the reader. And the performance that the reader gives of that book is unique to them. No two people read the same book. I think, I think it may have been Michener that said that there are as many books as there are readers because each one brings their own interpretation, their own prejudices, their own thoughts, their own experience to the book. And the book that they create in their mind is different between each person. And so if you think about that, there are actually millions of incarnations of Kryn that are uh, all across the globe and in different countries, different, different languages, different cultures, and each one colored by the other. And so when, when someone reads the book and if they read the book and they pronounce it Rasslin, in their performance, that's how it's, that is how it sounds. And in that universe that they have created based on our words, that pronunciation is correct. And so whenever people come and ask me, how do you pronounce this word? Or how do you pronounce this name? I said, well, how do you pronounce it? When you read it, how did it sound to you? And they'll tell me and I, I say, yes, yep, that's exactly how it, how it is. <laughs> because that's, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, so, that, I, so I may pronounce these names, my, you know, in, in the way in my head that the world exists, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's, that's how it exists in the world that they've created. It, doesn't it isn't necessarily how it exists in their performance right. of the world. Yeah, that is the most cool. generous answer I've ever heard an author give. And probably the longest. So uh, there well, you go, Josh. You're batting a thousand you and zero all at the same time. So if I were watching your performance of your book, how would you pronounce <laughs> that name? <laughs> well, it's always been Karaman to me. So, Karaman. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah. Uh, as a, a, and a, a derivative of caring man, I believe, is actually where... Nice. Uh, where I, I like that. From before. That, is, that really suits the character. It does. Is, is Raceland a derivative similar? Um, Raceland is not a derivative of anybody. Raceland is his own person. Boy, ain't that the truth. Oh, yes. yeah. Wait till you read the books. Yes. <laughs> yes, please do. One of my favorite mages of all time. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, just, just for your own edification, not that you haven't already heard you know, 300,000 different answers to this. But uh, I had a buddy that um, he had read the books before I had, and he was super duper into them. And when I said Raceland the first time, he goes, Josh, dude, it's not pronounced that way. It's pronounced Raceline. And I was like, oh. that feels weird, but I hear you. I get what you're saying. Um, and he was just dead set. That's how it's pronounced, Raiseline. And based so on the previous rhymes answer, with that Jolene. Here is that how that. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, oh, I'm not going to okay. sing it. I think I'm I've not got totally it in my head. Raiseline, 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 Raiseline. Hey, I could work. Yeah, we'll call Dolly Parton. We'll see if we can get it. <laughs> I'm sure she's a Dragonlance fanatic. 
I'm sure she is. I'm sorry. Next, <laughs> next roller coaster at Dollywood. Yeah. Uh, but okay. So uh, there are some questions that I like to ask authors whenever they come on the show. And actually, and and Dan, you might appreciate this. I have a brand new question that is going to be my standard what? fair question of a new all question. Guys. A new question. What? A new standard a new question. question. Yes. First standard, old standard questions, then oh. new standard question, and then we'll have like all the questions. Ready? Here we go. First question. Uh, usually when authors are creating characters, whether they be heroes or villains, that hero or villain ends up being a caricature or a reflection of some aspect of the author's persona. Not always the case, but many times the case, or rather so that they can give life to that character, they dig into their own personal experience. What, which hero and which villain do you most identify with? Um. Sturm is who I want to be. Uh, Tannis is probably closer to who I am. And I probably come across more like Fizban. Excellent. Um, uh, as, as for villains, it's, that's more difficult because I, I, uh, I can see the flaws in each of the villains' um, yeah, in in the different villains logic i'm not sure that he counts as a villain but i'd probably say dalimar mm. Ooh, that i like i like that character that, that's a although character. the villain although the uh um the guys whose job i think i'd most like to have would be a stennis nice yeah a lot of books a lot of books. Lots of books. Um, there are times when the author gets into the flow of telling the story and they discover the life of that story. The story takes on a life of its own is usually the expression, right? And what it means is that the story starts to flow in such a natural way that you feel like a conduit as, a, as opposed to the source. And then comes a point in the story where you know the story has to go a certain way or it has to be told a very specific way, but you don't want to do it that way. Have you ever had that experience? And if so, what was it? I, I, had, I had an experience where I was writing a book, uh, a series with my wife. And it was, I think it was the second book in the series, the Bronze Canticle series. And uh, I was moving, I was writing merrily along, writing, 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 writing. And the characters had, had, had trooped off through the mount, uh, into the mountains, had come to a great huge valley, and they just stopped. And it was like they were looking up at me from the page and saying, where do we go? What, where, where do we, where, we don't know where to go. We're just stuck here. What do we do? And I, you know, and I'm looking back at the page and I said, well, I don't know. Come on guys. Just, you know, you got to get over the mountain. You got to go up the valley and you got to go and find this thing over here. And why we don't know why we're going there and they just stood there on the page and i thought okay i'm sorry yeah i apologize to the characters <laughs> you know that i dragged them up here with you know and I, and went back and looked further back down and and sure enough i looked back further down about four chapters back and i had failed to give them any motivation for doing any of this whatsoever and they just stood there and yeah so I, I, I went back, I fixed that, rewrote those chapters, and we got to that point. And they said, yeah, okay, we know exactly where we're going. Okay. And they were really relieved. So was I uh, to, 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 uh, to, to get them to move on. I think I, I don't usually have that kind of problem, though. And the reason that I don't uh, have that kind of problem is that um, I always, uh, first of all, I always outline for structure. Um, but, um, and, uh, I've, I've used, told this before, but I always, I always think about outlines and writing, um, uh, as holding a bag, a, a handful of marbles. If, uh, if, if you have an outline and you have, uh, and you put all the marbles in your hand and you squeeze and hang onto that outline too tightly as to where you think the characters should go and what they should do. Um, 
pretty soon marbles start popping out all over the place and you lose your marbles. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, if you, I think, as a writer, at least for me, if I if I just open my hand and say, oh, characters, go wherever you will, and I will follow you and see where it leads us here in the narrative, I feel like it loses all structure and direction, and you'd lose your marbles again. But you should hold, but I always try to hold that outline like you hold a handful of marbles, which is you, you know, you, you form a shape, the structure, the form. And then you let the marbles settle naturally into that, or as my wife likes to say, organically into that. Uh, if that approach has always worked really well for me, it, it means that the characters and the plot are gonna move forward the way they need to move forward, but it also leaves enough room so that their motivations and, and their relationships and, and, and even events for that matter can happen more naturally than, than just because I said so. Right. That's, that's excellent. That's fantastic. Um, just a couple more quick questions here, and then I'll pass the torch back to Dan. But, um, you know, one thing, question yet? Uh, we have not gone to the new question yet, yeah. but we will. There, we will. In fact, actually, for the sake of time, there was one more question I wanted to ask, but maybe we'll make it a bonus I, feature yeah. after the interview. A bonus question. Bonus question. The but lightning we'll, round. Yeah, well, actually, there is a lightning round that I had oh, in my okay. head. I would love to get through. But uh, here's, here's the next new standard question. Uh, what do you think of the 1983 film Crawl? Oh, my gosh. Seriously. That is the new standard question I will ask every guest. <laughs> that is an excellent question. Thank you. I haven't seen it. Well, it, it only came out in 1983, so you're not too far behind. Yeah. Okay. Well, it came you know, shortly uh, after Empire Strikes Back, it's only thirty-eight years old. So you know, you're fine. I see. Okay. I was. I was. I think I was busy at the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think so. Probably writing Dragonlance. And have been busy since. So yeah. yes. I think you were washing your hair that night. I think that's that was it. Was that, I'm sure that was it. What? Yeah. Back when I had hair. Um. Are you ready for a lightning round? <laughs> I am. I'm as ready as I will ever be. Awesome. Favorite movie. <sighs> Uh, Mr. Hobbs takes a vacation. Oh, that's excellent choice. Uh, favorite color? Blue. Middle name? Ray. Uh, your favorite food? Chinese casserole. Worst thing you ever read? I have not yet read the worst thing I have ever read. <laughs> <laughs> what was What type of pet was your first pet? Uh, 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 cat. If you could bring any fantasy creature to life, what fantasy creature would you bring into this world? Pegasus. Optimist or pessimist or realist? Optimist. And uh, finally, favorite tabletop game? Favorite tabletop game? Favorite tabletop game is Fantasy Flight's uh, Journeys in Middle-Earth. Yes. Ah, I was hoping you'd say that. I, I, I'll, I'll be honest. Alton, Alton fed me that one some time ago, and I was hoping it was still the case because I, because of that, I got yeah. the game, and I uh, love that game. I have I have all of the expansions. I have hand painted <gasps> miniatures, and we have played through as a family. We have played through all of the scenarios, including the DLC content, and <sighs> loved every minute of it. Uh, folks at home, you don't know this, but prior to the show, Tracy Hickman showed us his model building skills, and they are divine. So I am, I am, I am salivating to see these models someday. So let's go ahead and, and put a button on this uh, real quick. Um, if I, in all honesty, had you seen the movie Crawl, the show would be two hours long. But that's okay. We'll move on. We'll move on. I'm, I'm happy to have shortened that for you. <laughs> awesome well listeners uh, don't know the gift they just got that's i know right <laughs> uh tracy hickman thank you so very much for being on the show for joining us we know that you're a busy guy uh we also know that you are D D famous and we are honored by your presence thank you very much for being here we appreciate you oh it's my pleasure to be here i, I love dungeon crawlers have for quite some time i'm always happy to come on All right, Dungeon Crawlers, that's our best of episode. 
We hope you enjoyed. Please reach out to us at info at DungeonCrawlersRadio.com or check us out on Discord and catch us next time because we'll be here with an awesome interview just for you and some really cool stuff this Halloween season. So we hope to hear from you soon. Please let us know what you'd like to hear in the upcoming months and new year. And with that said, we'll catch you next time. And remember what Krebs always says, be epic and don't suck. Remember, the force will be with you always.